to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather today. And I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. Well, hello and welcome back to another episode of Inspired by Yarra. This is the podcast that's been created to enhance, connect and inspire the Yarra Valley Grammar community and beyond. So wherever you might be tuning in from today, I want to say thank you. Welcome aboard. My name is Paul Joy and it is my privilege to sit down each episode with another yog, a Yarra Old Grammarian, to explore the ins and the outs, the twists and the turns of their journey, both at school and where the adventure of life has taken them since. And in a moment, I'm going to share a conversation that I will have with Daniel Mumby from the class of 1984. Daniel Mumby actually left Yarra in 1982, and as you're about to find out, quite a character. We talk a little bit about how he didn't necessarily fit in, and yet one word that he uses is a polymath. Polymath is a person who has great wisdom and knowledge and learning across many fields, and I think you're going to recognise why Daniel is self-proclaimed a polymath. It's a fascinating journey. It's an exciting adventure as we sit down with Daniel Mumby from the class of 1984. Some interesting book recommendations, some interesting recollections of his time at school, effectively his reflections on the past, and very much a person who is looking to the future. It's important that our community, our society, have people like Daniel Mumby. I'm going to begin our conversation today by asking him, where in the world is he? Uh, well, g'day, Paul. I'm 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 in Melbourne. I'm in lockdown, and we're in a um, we're in a state of anticipation at the moment. So um, we're we're waiting to come out of lockdown, um, and uh, you know it's been it's been a long sort of march, and then sort of back out again for a little bit in June, and then back in again, and and here and here we are now, sort of. Second three-month lockdown and um, and and very and itching really to get back into life. We're hoping that there's going to be a nice announcement on Sunday from the premier, but um, I'm I'm not confident. <laughs> before before we go too much into your story and your backstory, I'm I'm curious because you've just laid a beautiful platform of where we are right now in terms of COVID nineteen and the restrictions that we've been under, and I wonder. And, and this is sort of going fairly deep, fairly quickly, but eventually people who listen to this will look back on the COVID days and they'll have their own experience, their own memories, their own recollections of what it was like. People are saying, and I'm saying too, that I, I hope we learn from this. I hope, we, I hope we're not just the same. I hope we don't go back to the busyness of what life used to be pre-COVID. What do you hope we learn what how do you think we will change as a result of this global experience but then also more locally is anything going to be different when we come out of all this oh I, look i think so i i i um i spend a lot of time thinking about the future maybe not enough time necessarily in the present um but the the uh one of the great shifts i see um have you heard the phrase paul we've never been so connected technologically but never so isolated socially Yes, it's an interesting phenomenon. 
It is. And that was a phrase that was coined before this, this whole current crisis. One of the things I recognise is that um, people now, because they've been in curfew or they're locked down for 23, 24, yeah, 22, 23 hours a day, they're limited to where the, who they can connect with, where they can go, who they can see, is that we've become, interestingly, I've had lots of conversations with people about the fact that we've become very aware of who our connections are and actually being a little bit, yeah, perhaps cherishing those connections and communications. I think we're about to start to see a series of fundamental shifts and changes that enhance some of the things that we recognise that we've been missing. Uh, you know, they, they talk about the next industrial revolution as being the opportunity for um, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning and robotics and all of those, and that may well be true. But I think the real fundamental shift is actually going to be about reconnecting with people around the concept of tribalism. There'll be a few other shifts that we'll see, the concept of minimalism, the concepts of people downsizing, the people spending, you know, this has happened in every recession, people spending less money. But I think you'll start to see people spending money on things that really matter and seeing a lot less um, activity or engagement on on things that are superfluous. Mm. Interesting. And and because you are a, a forward thinking character, do you do you think technology is going to play a, a major role in that, or in fact, are we going to step away? Because technology has really saved us in lots of ways. Technology has allowed us to do things like this. You know, you're on one part of Melbourne, I'm in another part of Melbourne, and yet we can see each other, we can hear each other. And with technology, people in two weeks, two months, two years are still going to be able to hear this conversation. So technology has got some great strengths. Do you think technology will be part of our future in increasing measures or actually are we going to go back to actually face-to-face? Well, in, in some respects, um, firstly, let me say I hope so because um, I'm a technology investor and a venture capitalist. So, you know, commercially speaking, I'm betting on the tech, if you will. But here's the thing. I'm also a realist and I'm I'm not interested in technology for technology's sake. So for me, I look at technology as being the tool that achieves the fundamental end um, in the same way that you would go to Bunnings and you would or you go to a big box hardware store and you would buy a shovel. The shovel is the tool to do the job, and the job that you want is the hole. The objective is not the shovel. Um, you want the hole because you want to build the deck so that you can spend the outdoor summer months entertaining people and family and friends, but you need the hole. And, and so unlike a lot of my colleagues that they love the technology, I see it as being a means to an end. So, and, and I think that there are a great many types of technology that will become less relevant. Um, but interestingly the whole concept of now being work from home, work near home, I'm betting on those as well because I think there'll be a less about people travelling to the office, you know, uh, people living a long way away from their family members um, uh, is, is, is a problem, you know, having to commute an hour each way into the city and back if they're working in an office job. I think that office location will be significantly less important um, and therefore the tools like the one we're using now will be important, but they will actually free people up. They will actually give people back time and consideration, being able to spend time with, you know, having dinner with kids, which is something that, you know, a 
you travel an hour each day to work and back, you may not actually see much, much spend much time with your children. So I think there are fun, fundamental changes that are actually going to enhance and benefit society, but I think we're going to have to make conscious choices for those. Otherwise, you know, there is the risk of going back to. I totally agree with you. I think you're right. And I hope that as people listen and that maybe maybe our audience need to rewind the last three minutes and just see where you stack up. How do you stack up with the extra time that possibly you have gained because commuting has maybe gone out of the equation for your experience? I encourage you to think about what Daniel has just said in terms of how are you spending your time? Are you being conscious about the decisions that you're making? So Daniel, I appreciate those little thoughts and and I'm fascinated with your ability to be thinking forward. And, And as you say, that's economically, that's part of what you want to be able to do well. And that is, I imagine, predict which, from a technology perspective, which ideas, which concepts, which uh, technologies are going to become part of the norm, and is that am, am I right in that your role now is to almost support those ventures, those ideas that are going to come true or be go go big, and you back them, and then you almost you're banking on their success for your success. Is that is that kind of what you're doing now? What do you call yourself? What's your role? It's actually close. So I'm, I, I call myself a venture capitalist, but I'm actually a venture catalyst. In fact, I'm moving one step further beyond now. So I'd like to think that I'm, uh, I'm a fellow that can join the the dot, join the well, sorry, join the dots, be, be, join the lines between dots before other people can even see the dots. And so one of the things that I'm banking on now is being a venture catalyst. And so rather than just in building or investing in the ventures, I should say, it's actually about seeing the opportunities and getting ahead of the curve earlier and actually creating the opportunities. So um, I've built probably 15 ventures in my time. Um, in fact, when I was still at still at uh, Yarra Valley, I saw myself as a as a technology entrepreneur. I you know <laughs> even got some T-shirts printed to to actually say that I was a, t- a technology entrepreneur, so I could go into the tech stores and use their hardware. Um, you know, so I was quite clever and creative at the time. Um, that was a Yarra Valley thing. I don't think I've ever told anyone that. <laughs> don't tell anyone. <laughs> we we won't share it. We won't tell anyone. No, nobody's watching anyway. Um, I I love the fact that I can see things before they happen and I don't mean that's any sort of superpower it, it, it's it's because I'm paying attention it's because I'm I'm less interested in the minutiae of the world I'm quite a fan of of the concept of minimalism because it allows you to remove distraction from your life and I see that as a significant trend where people start to to downsize and to remove um, clutter and 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 busyness and to be, actually be able to focus on being present in the now with the things that matter to them. I see that as a significant movement or an opportunity. So I'm looking at businesses and ventures and opportunities that solve real-world compelling problems just like that one. How do people uh, take advantage of no longer being, uh, say, uh, I'll pick a good one, debt slavery is a really good example that that a lot of people are subjected to where you've got uh, a couple has two working parents in order to be able to uh, you know work work at, at, at covering the cost of a house but then they have to travel so far they're spending so much time 
working at the job or doing the thing that they actually get to miss out on spending, say, time with kids or or doing the things that they really love. And so is there a way to help people to reduce the size of their home to a different style of home um, that's more affordable, that it actually allows them to secure back some of their lifestyle? Um, I think this is an interesting conversation and I, I don't tend to see this from um, fellow uh, commercialization specialists are around these things but but I see these gaps and spaces as as coming and as necessary because because you're right many people get lulled into that want more have this get bigger the bigger the better and and accumulating more and more stuff and yet you would suggest and and I think I would agree with you that that actually potentially takes away from living and, and valuing the people that you're with and the opportunity that you have to connect and, and all those things that actually bring us joy and actually bring us a sense of success, whatever that might be, instead of needing a four-carport garage so that we can put our boat in one and our van in the other and two cars and have three out the back and, and more and more and more, and, and you're suggesting, I think, that if we were to pare that back a little bit, value what's truly important, then we might be able to not have such a big mortgage in this example and then be able to spend more time with those that we love. That sounds like a good idea to me. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and you know the, the old phrase of keeping up with the Joneses, you know, spending spending money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't like. You know, I mean, what? Who's, who signed us up for that deal? <laughs> um, and I'm not a and, and and I'm not a consumerist or a mercantilist by any stretch of the imagination. I, I'd like to think that I'm a humanist and that I'm always going to bet on people ultimately going to the thing that's of most of interest to them. And I think this lockdown, certainly in Victoria, but I hear from a lot of other places in Australia, um, from friends of mine, is that there's that a lot of people are starting to rethink their lives and what matters to them and what's important, and making conscious choices and getting off that hamster wheel that seems to just make us run faster and faster. I, I, I agree with you, and I'm I'm pleased to hear you say that. And from people, you know, in your field of conversation, let's get practical for a moment, though. Do you, in your experience, do you find that? even consciously or subconsciously thinking about how do I want things to be different, how do I place value in the right places, is thinking about it enough or or do you think, I don't know, journaling, writing it down, talking about it with others, what, what, how, do, how does one go beyond just thinking or is just thinking enough? I, uh, just thinking isn't enough. No, I, I in fact, I, I've got a, uh, a pile of journals here. I've probably got my notes um, I've got A4 journals. I wish I could show, hold up the pile of, of uh, journals for you, but I've got literally a uh, 20 plus journals from the last 10 years here sitting at the side of my uh, desk as a research journal. I walk around with a pocket of my journal, another one in my uh, my desktop, and then, you know, uh, and, and then another one again. My, uh, my life is about transposing my thoughts and concepts in on paper because nothing once written and recorded is ever lost. It may not be used, but the very exercise of writing it down indelibly etches a thought from my short-term memory into my long-term. So nothing is ever wasted. That's the first thing. The second thing is I have a whiteboard on my wall, which is about nine foot by about four foot, which is behind the camera so you can't see it, 
with every significant activity that I've got mapped out so that I can see how it interrelates to every other major activity that I'm working on, whether that be an investment, whether that be a major conversation, uh, 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 some sort of theoretical future product or a place that I want to be or uh, not go to physically, I mean in terms of commercially or my thinking. So, you know, I I don't put... I don't risk any idea to chance. Um, and I've probably published about a million words um, on a couple of the publishing platforms. Um, so I document my thoughts pretty reasonably. And um, and that I reckon that that reinforces my thinking style of, of, of thinking about where I want to go to and where I am now. And, 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 what, and what's the gap story about how do I go from where I am to where I want to get to? Yeah, and and that's the exciting bit. And I love that analogy that you mentioned of of what you aim to be is the person who can see the line between the dots before anybody else has even seen the dots. And and by mapping it out as you do on that big whiteboard, which is a, a, a big overview of all of the things that you've got cooking at the moment, and and then seeing the connections and and perhaps even some of the pathways to move you forward is is super exciting and and a great methodology. I wonder whether you exhibited any of those type of behaviors when you were say at school, a 14, 15 year old. Are you at that point, if you can go back that far, um, I don't mean to be disrespectful, <laughs> but I mean in terms of <laughs> your your natural inclination is to go forward, not backward, and I, I appreciate that and applaud that. But, you know, was there anything in your, your growing up, in your education, in your childhood that lent you toward looking for the opportunities where other people are just kind of just coping with the now? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm glad, Paul, I'm glad you raised it. Um, we sort of, um, it's something I wanted to touch on. We did touch on the introduction, sorry, in the, before the pre-introduction, but but it's worth bringing up now. So was there anything in my background and my behaviour? Yes. So so I'm I'm what you would call a polymath, um, and it's worth looking up if you don't know that, especially if you've got kids. Um, I was quite bright, but I was also a little bit disconnected from my social environment from my school, which is sort of why I leapt out of school um, and and went out into the real world, not because I couldn't handle it, but because I felt like I didn't fit. And I'd come from a blue-collar background. Mum and Dad moved around a lot. Um, I wasn't an army brat, but it was just one of those things. Mum and Dad were immigrants and they felt like they wanted to experience the best that Australia had to offer, so we moved around. So every year or two, I was always the new kid at school. So I had to learn to be this chameleon and fit in very well. And because you're always the new kid, you're always going to be picked on. You're the easy target. So, um, But Yarra Valley was the first year that I had been to a school. I came in year nine. I came from being a straight-A student at a, at a, a public high school um, and, and a more than a straight-A student. Um, but but I, f- I felt like suddenly I was a fish out of water because I was suddenly in amongst a whole lot of other people who were bright, but at the same time, they didn't think like I did and they didn't, they didn't, um, they came from family with money. And I, you know, my parents were probably still paying off the, the debt now from, <laughs> from high school. Um, but, uh, you know, so I was, I was a little bit disconnected from the school environment and I didn't quite know how to fit. I came from a, a public school into a private school, um, in, into a, a, you know, a, a, from a sectarian to a, to a religious school. And, and I, and I struggled with that. And so I think, the, the the one of the things, and I spoke with this with, uh, with Rosie Brown about this, um, about the fact that I um, uh, I didn't quite understand my place. Now that was in some respects a benefit, um, and it's probably why I jumped out of school a little little early. But let's see if I can make some sense of this and, and give 
give your audience some context. Um, there are people that look like they don't fit or that they are, um, you know, a square peg in a round hole. Um, it's probably that, that when you find people like that, that you haven't recognised their superpower yet. Mine was there. Mine was that ability to see things that didn't exist. Um, it's just that sometimes those things aren't recognisable. When you find somebody that's a little bit um, broken is the wrong word. It's not broken. It's it's they're disconnected. Um, it's you know uh, I know I have uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder thing, but whatever that is. Um, but that's that's the symptom. That's not the 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 cause. The cause is I was always interested in everything, and so I didn't have a very long attention span. And so you know I would study the thing at school, and it was interesting for five minutes, and I would move on. But everybody else was all back doing that. I already got it and moved on from that. And so I was not getting what I needed from the school. Um, that's a really powerful thing if you can recognise for, for that. It probably took me another 20 years before I recognised that that's why I struggled with school. And, and in hindsight, um, you know, I probably could have gone farther, faster in knowing that earlier. But, but also here's the, here's the beauty of it. Every experience that you have whether positive or negative, is never wasted. It's always of benefit to you at some point in your life because it gives you insight. And, um, you know, uh, there's a there's a wise saying, um, those who neglect to learn from his, history's mistakes are off to repeat them. But the converse is also true. The opportunity to learn from history's mistakes and failures gives you an advancement beyond many other people. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, it, it's interesting and it's certainly a very positive way to reflect on your schooling in regards to that while there were challenges, there is learning and lessons and, and valuable takeaways from those challenges, whether they be socially or academically. But I also appreciate the notion of approaching your experience of school in, in the idea that Actually, you had already consumed that thought, that idea, and you had moved forward. And and I, I I like that thinking and that planning and that that mindset that you've got that that you're always looking for the next thing, the next you know moving forward. And yet, you you whether you do it, you certainly say it that there is benefit and value in learning the lessons from the past. And and I think that's really helpful. Let's let's look at, at another perspective of your schooling at least this is called the inspired by yara podcast and so i want to have a, a little bit of a play around with where you used to hang out and and what you would do while you were at school like you you've said that you were into tech and and you you even were entrepreneurial in that you made t-shirts and that almost assigned you to something to try and get you into somewhere and so forth but what what were the sort of things that grabbed your attention albeit maybe for a short time while you were at school well, Paul, I'm glad you asked because this is sort of a little bit of a follow-on answer to your previous question as well. Um, so I talked a bit about the fact that I published about a million words. I've got a couple of books going on at the moment and um, and and I write quite write prolifically and I'm probably one of the most connected people on, on LinkedIn in terms of um, that and I've done that through my content. Back when I was at Yarra Valley, um, I was involved in setting up and contributing to perhaps the the magazine for the, I think, Australia's first school computer club, um, that's arguably. So it was the um, 
uh, Yarra Valley Computer Club. And Yarra Valley at that time had technology that you didn't exist even in some large corporations. Um, you know, I think there was a computer club and there was 15 or 16 uh, personal computers. Um, they were called Apple. They were an Apple computer, but they were like the second one that Apple ever produced. And and uh, and Yarra Valley probably had them before any other school. And so I was very actively involved, not only in the computer club, but also in the magazine that we created, which was called The Great Australian Byte. Um, I even, I think I had some involvement. I was always contributing to the articles. In fact, we, I think we found in the yearbook, we actually found some examples of some of the content that we produced. Um, I even remember the logo that, that, that I actually designed. So, you know, that, that concept of technology at the intersection of communication and insight was something that even at Yarra Valley that interested me. So I was involved in the computer club, I was involved in the magazine, and I was involved with the other kids who were into those sorts of activities. And that was probably one of my mainstays. Mm. I didn't quite, I played the sport, but I, I was never the sports kid. I didn't, you know, you'd never see me on the list of the hockey team. Well, I was played hockey, but I was never on the list of the kids who were most likely to succeed at sports. Um, but I was always interested in the technology as it related to media and content and communications. And, and clearly, absolutely. When was the last time you went for a, a workout, a run? Oh, uh, so I've got the gym set up in the garage, but I've been um, less than, uh, unfortunately, COVID has, has seen me being less active rather than more. Um, and whilst I've got the gym set up in the garage, I'm, I'm a little reluctant to say that I've, I've used it in the last month. <laughs> and, and certainly, certainly no judgment here. But, uh, but I appreciate that you know that about yourself. And, and I think that that's really important. And, and by the sounds of it, at least on reflection, you know that about your, your, you know, your teenage years as well, that there was the, one of the, the beauties of a school like Yarra is that there is a place for everybody. And you go and you, you connect with around interests, around um, things that you'd like to pursue and talk about. And, and if sport's not your thing, that is okay. There is some value in doing it and you participate, but your interests and your focus can be elsewhere. And there will be other people who will appreciate that and celebrate that with you as well. I wonder, given, given your uh, need to be creative in your thinking and, and, and perhaps your um, openness to new ideas, was, was music or art or drama part of your positive experience that you can recall? Um, look, I, it, it, it wasn't. And and surprising, it's which is surprising because I actually do write uh, quite a quite a lot now, and in fact, I've even got a couple of uh, a series of, uh, of fiction books going on at the moment around a political thriller. Um, given given our current times, I'm not sure that that's surprising. <laughs> Everyone's writing a political thriller at the moment, um, but uh, um, I wasn't I wasn't necessarily what you would very uh, what you would call very good in the delivery of the creative. From a dramatic point of view, I was not particularly good at English in terms of the deconstructive parts of or analysing of. I was I was always much more interested in the doing and the delivering, but not not necessarily creatively. And 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 whilst I love music, 
Um, I I didn't get that gene, I, I don't think. Um, funnily enough, one of the things I was quite good at was computer coding, and I think by the time I left Yarra Valley in the space of a little under two years, um, I had learned to, to code in, to, in five computer languages uh, before I was even 16. So, you know, that was that was something that I got that, um, that I could not have done probably in any other school at the time in the country. Um, and, in fact, I know that some, some of my peers and colleagues who were interested in, in that that technology as well, um, went on to have very long distinguished careers with a couple of large um, multinationals um, and have done quite well for themselves with that same background. So, you know, there, there was those opportunities for me. But, yeah, I didn't I didn't get the creative gene in, in that sense. <laughs> sure. You, you mentioned, and I, I, I'd like to dig into home life a little bit now, and, and you mentioned that your, your parents were, were immigrants and that meant that they were seeking to find the best of what Australia had to offer. And in your childhood, whether, whether it be holidays or whether it be actually tripping around the various places that you explored and maybe lived during your, uh, your early years, were there are there places and memories that really hold hold very dear to you? Was it a, a holiday destination that you went back to again and again, or maybe there was you went to one place once and it it still holds positive memories for you? And, and I guess I'm I'm erring toward Australia, and I'm erring toward is there a recommendation of a place that you would love to go back to once we are allowed to? Mm. It's interesting. I was watching a documentary last night, something that's relevant to a great many people in Australia, was the 50-year anniversary of the collapse of the Westgate Bridge, and, and which was quite a significant event in that happened in Melbourne 50 years ago, obviously. Um, um, and in Australia, we were immigrants from the UK, and we came in uh, 1969, and, and we stayed at a hostel, an immigration hostel, I think, um, and we left not long after the Westgate Bridge collapsed, but we were um, staying at a, a immigration hostel that was probably about 500 metres from the Westgate Bridge collapse. So the so that concept of Fisherman's Bend has always held some sort of sway for me because it's the first place I lived in Australia. Um, now, obviously, I was only three at the time so and, and then a bit older, so I don't really remember it I do, you know, we, we all have those early memories, but so I do remember the place, but I don't remember it significantly. But it holds some sort of significant sway for me as a place that I would like to be and live and work and add some value because it's the first place that I landed in Australia. Obviously, the other the other thing that, that the place that we all each would recognise is the area in which perhaps we grew up bought our first home. So because because often for us, that's the first place that we sink our roots, not the the place that when we when we're young adults and we move out of home or we live with other people and share apartments or student accommodation or those sort of things like that, they don't necessarily hold much sway. But the areas that we we buy our first home and raise our own children, that for us often becomes the place where we feel home. And and so perhaps going back to that area um, might might hold some sway for me as well. And and could you tell us where that was? Where where did you establish? That was Vermont in in Melbourne, um, and I in fact it was uh, well uh, Vermont South. In fact, so I bought my my first home in Nunawading, and and that was the very very small home. And then the second home I bought, which I was quite happy with, was the forty square monster. Um, I actually don't think I would go back to the forty square monster. I, I'm uh, my my kids are all grown up and 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 moved on since then, so you know they're all living their own lives. But I but I think there is a there is a lot of um, 
sense of uh, of home about that area. So I think I would, you know, dearly like to move back to that area if I can. Yeah, for sure. The the eastern suburbs of Melbourne are certainly um, continue to to be a place of of flourishing. And uh, you know, I, I guess if we think about property prices, and you know, it's a place where people want to be. And uh, mind you, Fisherman's Bend in that area as well. You know, and and Williamstown and around there, that's all very popular. A good spot to be nowadays too. Well, it is, but I'm actually much more interested in what it's going to become. It's been announced that they want to actually turn that into the sort of second city. And so as a um, as a venture capitalist, as a, as a venture creator, I'm interested in the people that might want to move into that space as it transitions from becoming an industrial area to becoming a knowledge or creativity centre. So I'm, I'm interested in whether that might then attract some of Melbourne's best and brightest as a centre of excellence or opportunity. And, and so I see the, 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 the trends that I see around helping people around um, how people live and work and collaborate and create together. And they're the gaps and spaces that I'm really interested in. So I like Fisherman's Bend from the point of view of the historical, but I also like it because it's as much in my future as it is in my past. Um, I think I read somewhere that the, the, the state government is looking to put potentially a half a million people in that area um, as, a, as it replaces the industrial you know, the Boeing factory and the Holden Engine Company and a few of the other places there. I think the, the craft factory's recently been decommissioned. Um, I could be wrong on that one. Um, and I think, you know, that's a wonderful opportunity for that. And also not just just from from uh, learning too, because learning for me is is a really a lifelong exercise. Um, you know, school is, school is one mechanism for learning, but school sort of, um, it, it strikes the match that lights the fire, if you want to put it that way. And uh, so school was school is good, um, but it's where you start, not where you finish. <laughs> so, yeah, there's some great concepts there, and and so many. Um, I, I love the that school might be the the ignition point at which you establish some helpful, useful uh, tools and experiences and skills. But then the goal would be, and I think the goal for any great educator is that it would then the student would then take those skills, those abilities into life and keep learning and keep exploring and and applying some of those principles to whatever comes your way. Um, I wonder if you can, because I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated with the way that you think and the way that you draw the, 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 the pieces together. It's a beautiful thing. Tell me a little bit about community because if there's going to be hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people living in a small little area, and, and I know this is in the future, but and, and there's a learning mechanism that goes with that and there's a, an excellence aspect to what that might be and, and the thinking and the creativity, but is somebody thinking about what does it take to bring those people together and live in community? Because I'm imagining that commuting is not necessarily what we're attracting, but actually living in and around where we work and where we play and where we explore and where we create and how's that going to look? Well, it's interesting you should say that because one of the things I talk about and I mentioned before is about how we live and work and create together. And the key phrase in that is the word together because we're not doing it in isolation. The, The concept of one and one does not equal three, one and one equals 11, but you've got to do it right. 
And that requires us to create together and then share in the upside together, which means that we actually have to learn how to collaborate with each other and, and create um, for value um, or and in harmony and sync. Um, I should say too, Paul, that four of my uh, ventures have been not-for-profits, um, but, but in fact they weren't about money. They were about actually for impact. So um, I'm quite interested in the concept of, you know, things like um, uh, community um, and mental health and social cohesion and social engagement, these these things matter to me. Um, it's not all about the dollars. It's about how do you connect and engage with people. Maybe I'm trying to make up some, some deficiencies earlier in my life where I, I wasn't necessarily as good at connecting or engaging with people, um, <laughs> at least on an authentic level. Um but I'd, I'd like to think that that's really, really important in the, in the process for people as they, as they go forward. It's about learning to work together and it's about creating together. And, you know, we're not always going to agree in, in we're, if we're part of some team or what have you, but as long as we can agree on the rules and do this thing that my dad used to teach me about, you know, play the, play the ball, not the man, and, and, and focus on, uh, on the outcome and then sharing in the upside with other people. I think if we do that or we do more of that, um, we, we practice an abundance mentality rather than a scarcity mentality. I think there's always going to be more than enough to go around. You know, if I'm fighting with somebody about in order for me to have more, you must have less, then I've already lost and you've already lost. Um, I believe it was um, it was Dr. Robert Schuller or Zig Ziglar that said, um, if I help enough people get what they want, I can have pretty much anything I want. So if the focus of, for me is on helping other people to achieve their goals, aims, objectives, wants and desires, I think I'm probably okay. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think I, I would refer that to Zig Ziglar and, and I think you're right. If you're helping enough other people, then what you need and what you gain out of that will look after itself. And uh, and I appreciate the, the importance that you play on serving and supporting and helping and nurturing others in their ideas and dreams and concepts. And I wonder whether just as a little insight and, again, I'm going to invite you to go backwards for a moment and later I'm, I'm really going to take you forwards. But is what's one project, and, and you call it a venture, one project that either is one that you're super proud of or one that we might have heard of or seen or noticed or maybe even are using or a part of and we didn't even know that you were fundamental to helping that that whether it's a, an, an object, whether it's a service, whether it's a, a, a concept, whether it's a tool, whether it's an app, whether it's... Is there something that we might have come across that actually has got your fingerprints on it? Yeah, look, there, there are a couple, but there, some of them are really sort of in growth mode at the moment. Um, there's a couple in some technology and one in drones and a couple of others. Um, but because they are in growth mode, I'm, I'm a little reticent to say. Um, I did work for... A, a, Maybe I'll, I'll take a step back there for a second. One of the things that that I love about entrepreneurship is that um, is that pretty much any project can succeed, but you've got to work at it. But but most of them won't. And you know I, I do tend to think at a hundred miles an hour here, Paul. So I you know forgive me if if you know any of the any of the things that I'm saying sound a little bit like wow, I didn't get that. That's okay. I'm just, you know, because I'm, most people don't think like me. So, I, you know, if you don't get what I'm saying, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> um, 
I love the fact that in entrepreneurship that that any project just about can succeed, but the majority of the most won't. The thing that matters in entrepreneurship is the concept of resilience of falling over and getting up again and getting up again and getting up again. And um, uh, was it the Japanese phrase, fall down seven times, get up eight? Um, which sounds counter, sounds intuitive. Well, of course I fall down seven times, I'm going to get up an eight. No, you fall down once, you get up once. You fall down a second time, you get up a second time. The Japanese concept is you fall down seven times, you get up seven, and then you get up eight. And so eventually what happens is you lift yourself. I was saying before about the fact that it, that, that that nothing is wasted, and it's very, very true in entrepreneurship. The, the people that you meet from this project and the team that you meet from that project, eventually they become levels of, of hygiene factors, if you will. Your network becomes large enough. Your knowledge base becomes large enough. Your skill base becomes large enough that pretty much any project that you attempt will then go on to succeed. The thing about the projects that I'm mostly working on at the moment is I'm interested in the mechanisms of success so that any project can work. Um, and, and you'll see a scenario that goes from never having heard of any of the things I worked, worked on before to suddenly seeing my name everywhere. That's not a fame thing. That's just a recognition that in the entrepreneurship space, it's not a linear progression. It's an exponential um, uh, mechanism uh, that's why, you, you know, Elon Musk is a good example. He went from having uh, one success, which was the Zip project, to then having and putting his money into PayPal and having that successful, but then taking the money that he made from PayPal and becoming what's known as a parallel entrepreneur, not a serial entrepreneur, is where you invest in multiple ventures or build multiple ventures at the same time. So it, uh, Tesla car, Tesla home, SpaceX, Solar City, um, and uh, there was another one too. So he's literally had about uh, f- five separate ventures at the one time, uh, possibly even six. You know, who does that? Nobody does that. You do that because you've actually learned how to um, focus on the things that matter in a particular project and you're able to then amplify the results and the outcomes from that. And that's very, very true in entrepreneurship. That's why you'll you'll hear about these journeyman uh, people that go along for 20 years and you've never heard of them before and suddenly they become an overnight success. They didn't become an overnight success. It just took them a few years to learn and apply all the principles. And uh, I'd like to say that I feel like I've just finally finished my 35-year apprenticeship. Uh, so... <laughs> Um, in answer to your question, there are things that are coming that you will hear of, um, but but they have been projects, some of them that have been in the works now for five and seven years. Yes. And and certainly, uh, look, I really appreciate that and, and the reality of that scenario. And resilience is uh, certainly a word, a concept, a, uh, a character trait that we're talking about increasingly in, in schools and it seems to me that it's not a new concept. It's something that we've been working at and learning. We've just perhaps um, made the term, made the phrase a little bit more spunky now, and it's the sort of thing that people, everybody's talking about resilience. But I appreciate that over the long haul, and an apprenticeship is a good way of, of thinking about it, is that it actually you've just got to keep showing up. You've got to keep turning up. And even when it's cold outside, even when you, you know, your fingers are, uh, <laughs> you can't even feel your fingers because it's that cold or, you know, whatever those parts of your role, your experience, your day to day are that are not necessarily, you know, what you leap out of bed for, you've got to go through those bits to in, be able to enjoy and learn to be able to then enjoy 
the fruits of that hard work over the long haul. And and you're a, a celebration of that, and I love that. And and looking forward to seeing your name everywhere because we want to continue to be proud of our yogs, our Yarra Old Grammarians, and, uh, and, and seeing where your fingerprints show up all over the place. I'm excited for that. Well, that's, it's certainly it's certainly going to be a little fun over the next little while. One of, one of the things that I'm I'm quite prepared to pay the price on, Paul, is that um, is that what I'm doing will either work or it won't. <laughs> but uh, I won't die wondering. You know, the, the the thing that my father and my grandfather instilled in me, apart from a very good work ethic, was that you know is is if you don't uh, if you don't try, the one thing you'll always have to live with your life at the end of your life is the regret. Um, mm. I will never have the regret of, of, of attempting to become the person that I was always meant to be. And that's the journey I'm on, the journey of self, of becoming that 16-year-old version of me back then that I was at Yarra Valley and now becoming that person. And as I said, it's a 35-year apprenticeship. It's, mm. it's taken that long for me to, to learn all the things that I needed to know. Um, and I'd like to think that I'm probably at the top of my field now in terms of knowledge and experience and, and, um, um, and, and actionable intelligence, if you want to call it that, um, if, if not necessarily past track record of results. Um, but, you know, <laughs> you, you, couldn't, you couldn't buy the, um, the, the, the learnings and the, the apprenticeship that I've had over the last 30 years, I'll tell you, it's, yeah. it's um, uh, you don't you don't um, you don't buy resilience. You get resilience by turning up, by showing up, by getting knocked down, by getting back up again, and getting knocked back down and getting up again. <laughs> That's you know, um, and what are they, was it? They say it's survival of the fittest, but in fact, I actually believe it's survival of the most adaptable. And so, if you want to survive in this modern age. Um, as as our ancestors did uh, for the last million years, is uh, or depending on how you believe, so for the last six thousand, um, is is the people who are the most adaptable are the ones that survive and thrive both in hard times and good. And, and either way, you're going to have a few bumps and grazes and uh, a few scraped knuckles along the way, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not the people who are the most likely to succeed that them that succeed. It's the people who are most likely to change, and mm. and you know, learning to be adaptable and go, oh, that didn't work. What can I learn from that? And then going, all right, that 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 hurt. Failure hurt. Next time I'll learn to duck. And uh, you know, and eventually you, yeah. I, I have a phrase that eventually you get so good at so good at failing that you end up failing to fail. Yes. Yeah, fair enough. I, I like that. I like it. Um, Daniel, I wonder if we might move into, um, a, a, I guess, a, a, the lightning round where I'm going to throw a whole bunch of questions at you and, and some of them will stick and you'll have a one-word answer and others that might need a sentence to describe it. And, and some may have gone from your memory. And, and we're going to kind of cast our minds back to a little bit of your experience of Yarra and then, uh, I guess, some of your thoughts as we begin to round up our conversation, which I have enjoyed immensely so far. Daniel Mumby. questions too, by the way, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. I wonder, well, we'll see how we go with these uh, these questions. Can you remember what house you were in when you were at Yarra? Oh, uh, Yellow Hughes. Hughes, well done. Yes, very good. Very good. Holy moly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good. Tell me, can you recall something that we would have found in your lunchbox while you were a kid at school? Actually, no. The amount of times I went to school without lunch, because I'm not a kid that eats lunch, I still don't eat lunch today. <laughs> no. <laughs> How did you get to school? How did you travel? Bus. 
Oh, it was an hour each way by bus. Okay. And where were you coming from at that point? Mount Evelyn. Okay. And tell me a little bit about the journey. Uh, I know that uh, you had certain groups that you connected with and and maybe many that you didn't, but was there something special about the bus crew, your bus that you, you know, did you have a seat on the bus and you went to the same seat every time or next to the same person every time? What was that experience like? You know, I don't remember because I think for me I'd get on the bus and I would read a book and I always, I've got a book and I read prolifically. So my head was in the book. Okay. Tell me um, if you could recommend to your 16-year-old self a book, whether it was one from then or one from that you've read recently, what's a book that you think would be, I don't know, let's put it on the required reading list for teenagers? Do you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick two, but I'm not going to pick two for the reasons you think. And one is the book that I read every year. And, and I didn't, I was given it when I was 21, 22. I wish I'd been given it earlier. Um, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, which is actually not about money. It's about a richness of the mind and a richness of the spirit and a richness of the heart and of the soul. And you know, and, and I reread that book every year for before its intrinsic benefits. It's a very, very powerful book. Um, I think I've given away probably 50 copies of that same book to other people. Um, the second book that I'd read, and I'd probably read it as an adult maybe every couple of years, probably not as much as I should, but, I, but also for the depth of thinking, is I actually read the Bible. Now, I don't read the Bible from a religious sense. What I do is I read it from um, an insight and a guidance sense to say, what is it that other smart people know that I don't? What am I missing out on? What context or understanding or sentiment or insight can I glean from the wisdom and experiences of others? So whilst I have a deep spirituality myself, I'm not suggesting people read it from a necessarily from a religious point of view. But, you know, hey, look, it's been around a couple of thousand years. It was a bestseller, uh, you know, <laughs> and yeah, it wasn't written actually by one person. So, you know, I mean, it, it's a pretty damn good story just in itself. But there's a lot of insights and wisdoms in it that are worth a read um, that, that, you know, you, you could do worse than, you know, reading that versus perhaps picking up a Mills and Boone novel or reading a car magazine. How's that? <laughs> I appreciate both of those recommendations very much. It uh, And and you're right. Look, in, in the a book, a collection of stories, a collection of wisdom like the Bible uh, wouldn't still be around and wouldn't still be a bestseller if there wasn't something in there of value, and I appreciate that. You can come at it from a, a range of different approaches, and there's probably value to be found with however you approach it if you're ready to receive. So I appreciate that recommendation. Do you remember, and, and you can't say neither, although you'll want to say neither, <laughs> if you had to go to house swimming or house athletics, what would be your preference? I go athletics, uh, firstly, because I still can't swim. I'm a terrible swimmer. But I love the cross country and I actually wasn't too bad at it. It was probably the one sport that I love. So athletics. Very good. If 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 I was uh, coming over to your place for dinner, what would be your dish of uh, speciality? What's something that you would serve up? What's it, something you're good at? 
See, I've actually got, I, I do actually love the good old traditional English, old English cooking because I like that concept of it. But meals are something that's really important to me because, well, you know, uh, meals are where we break bread, where we connect with people. We, we talk over coffee, but we connect over a meal. And so that's where the humanity is. Um, I actually tried out a couple of times for MasterChef. I'd like to think that I'm a bit of a Mr. Chef. So, I, and, and I always found um, um, that, uh, you know, my, my, mother wasn't a very good cook and my first wife wasn't particularly great in the kitchen so I was by necessity forced to become quite good in the kitchen it's just stayed with me so I probably have a staple of about a of a hundred just really good dishes that I can throw together at any place you know a really really good green uh Thai vegetable curry made from scratch with the garlic and the chilies the green chilies and what have you would be a, a good example Fantastic. That that sounds really good. Take me out of the picture and you get to invite three people from past, present, future, history, alive or not. Who are a couple of people that you'd like to sit down and connect with? Not just talk over coffee, but really connect. Really connect with. Now, now I'm going to give you one weird one, but I'm going to preface it by saying that there's a reason for it because of a very specific thing. But I, Look, one of one of the one of the most famous think, uh, thinkers that I would love to connect with, obviously, is Albert Einstein. Of course, because of for his sheer capacity and brilliance. But his brilliance, actually, even though he had the summer of uh, was it nineteen oh nine, was where he had the five uh, uh, patentable inventions, and that was his big time. But in fact, it was actually his later later in life when he was um, where he was more successful and more well known, where he had some of his greatest insights not just in the technological space. So Albert Einstein, of course. The third one I'm going to leave for a second here, but I'm going to tell you why I'm going to pick the third one in a second, but he was about his capacity to help other people overcome, but it's not going to be a popular choice. The second one would be George Bernard Shaw. For his ability to look at life and glean his insights from situations and events and turn that into life lessons. And our third one, now I'm going to be careful of this because don't misinterpret it, but in fact, Adolf Hitler. And I'll tell you why. Not because I, I don't have any admiration for the man at all, but he saw a problem of Germany in the 1920s that was crushed from the First World War, and he saw an opportunity to lift other people out. Now, his method was wrong and he did it wrong, but he had an insight around being able to inspire people and direct them to a common cause for all of the things that are wrong, but there were things that he did and saw and recognised that were right. His method was wrong, but his intent, ultimately in terms of lifting Germany out of its um, of its malaise and the fact that it had a debt that would be equivalent these days of probably $20 trillion um, and being able to want to lift Germany out of that debt, um, you know, his insights and perspective on that would be remarkable, if not terrible. Hmm. I think like no conversation on the Inspired by Yarra podcast that I've had to date, am I going to need to go back and re-listen to some of this conversation? And you did preface it before of saying, if you can't keep up with me, it's not you, it's me. And But just the depth of your thinking and reflection and exploration of ideas and concepts and and I love your willingness to not just go with the the traditional and uh, and maybe cause us to think and to ponder a little bit I, I really really appreciate that Daniel you've been really generous with your time and as we start to wrap up I mean I would love to keep going um, we might have to get you for 
part two sometime soon. But I, I, I tell you what, I would l- I'd love to do a follow up in a couple of years too, Paul, and see, you know, Dan, you were saying about bloody blah, how did that go? <laughs> and yep, failed dismally or was right on the money. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Tell me, I'm going to offer you a, a term, a concept that you may or may not be familiar with. It's actually the school motto, Lavavi Oculus. And I wonder, do you recall what that means? I can help you if you need to. Lavavi Oculus. You may be able to help me because it, it, it may, in fact, without my Latin is terrible these days. My, my Vendi Vidi Vici is still there, but, but a lot of the other isn't still. Um, although one of my famous, most famous quotes is actually from the Shakespeare play Julius Caesar, uh, which is about, you know, um, uh, often quoted by Winston Churchill. So, um, but uh, no, I'll tell you what, I don't know what it means. So would okay. you remind me? Sure. Let's see how relevant it is. And that's right. And and I guess once I give it to you in English, I, I wonder if you would reflect on it and see what it means. Uh, Levavi oculus to lift up my eyes. What does it mean as a as an idea as a concept for a school to adopt to instill in their students, with success or not, <laughs> to lift up your eyes? You can't, from a school perspective. Um, is, is sort of a little hard, but I can think from an individual perspective is that I can't see the horizon if I'm looking down at my feet. So the thing that I'm always, if you could imagine an, an individual as an exemplar or an avatar of me, is that you would see me on the prow of a ship with a, you know, uh, from, you know, from the 1700s, looking out to the horizon off there, you know, th- there's where we're going out there beyond her. I'm, you know, I'm not the guy hoisting up the sail. I'm the guy out on the thing. So the concept, as it, as it turns out, of lifting up your eyes is really relevant to the nature of my life. <laughs> Absolutely. Seeing into the future. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and so even though you couldn't quote it, you've lived it. And for that, I, uh, I really appreciate your uh, willingness to give us some of your time to, to track around a little bit of your time at Yarra, but, but certainly what has happened since you uh, walked out the gates of Yarra for the last time. And, and I, look, I know and, and, and I've been privileged to be able to be part of a variety of programs and activities that you've, you know, have been part of and, and given back to the school. And, and for that, we're very grateful. Uh, my last question is a very current, very relevant, and that is around the, the topic or the theme of passion. And that's because yesterday I presented to a group of year nine students. So we're, we're looking at 14, 15 year olds. And if you had two minutes with a, a group of 150 students and you were to talk about passion, I wonder what are some of the key messages that you might want to convey? So passion is something that I talk and write a lot about, um, uh, but but I but I talk about it not from the point of of just doing your passion or whatever that is. Um, I've had I've been fortunate enough to come back to the school and be involved in a couple of entrepreneurial projects and some guidance with a couple of the other old grammarians as well through um, uh, uh, Rosie Brown and um, I, I really look forward to doing that again if I can. And we so this is something that we talk about or we've talked about in some of the schools as well. Um, there's an old concept of of the Japanese. Uh, concept of it's called the reason for being and the Japanese name for it is called ikigai and it's essentially these four overlapping circles one of which is passion but the the other 
um, four, and I always forget one of them, but but essentially it's it's passion, it's mission, it's profession, it's vocation. And if you can try and figure out how to get those four circles overlapping, um, you end up with a scenario where you are in the sweet spot of your life and, and that sweet spot can carry you for a very long time, mind you. Um, so it's the concept of what am I good at, what do I love, what does the world need and what will it pay for? And if I can figure out how to get those four circles overlapping, my passion, my vision, mission, my vocation and my profession are all now completely in sync. So I would say when it comes to the concept of passion, don't do it at, at the expense of everything else. Do it in consideration of how it fits with everything else and eventually it'll make some sense coming to you. It might take a little while circling around it, but but I would urge people to look up that concept of Ikigai, I-K-I-G-A-I, and, um, and uh, all will be made clear by looking at the image of that document. <laughs> Daniel Mumby, I just have really appreciated the the depth and the 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 breadth that you've taken us on this journey today and uh, really appreciate both your time but also your insight and your reflective and and as much as you look forward and and we love that about you and we need people like that you've you've certainly learned from your past and your history and your journey and 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 people who have gone before you and so i i really appreciate that you've been able to pull all of those um perhaps um, flailing ideas and brought them all back in a really succinct way. And as I did mention, I certainly am going to go running with you at some stage, at least in my ears as I uh, listen to another podcast and inspired by Yarra podcast with yourself. So thank you for your generosity. Thanks for your storytelling. Thanks for the wisdom that you've been able to impart to us today. And, and, as the podcast is called Inspired by Yarra, I think that there are certainly traces of your journey that have absolutely been uh, instigated and inspired by your time at Yarra and you continue to be an inspiration to Yarra. So for that, we thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Can I give you, can I leave you with one thought? Absolutely. I, okay. And, and by the way, thank you for having me on. One of the things that, that I had, it's been shared with me and you can bring this back into the podcast if you want to move it around. One of the things that has been given to me, one of the lessons that I've been taught is that I, I have been the recipient of great mentoring by many great mentors. And as a as a, a someone who is being mentored, as a protege, I, it's been impressed upon me that I have an obligation to pay that forward to other people. So the, my honour is to be able to share some of the insights and wisdoms that I've learned by being on the shoulders of other giants, of, of being on the shoulders of giants, if you will. Um, so as we receive that mentoring, we have an obligation to pay that forward to other people. So the privilege, I have to say, is mine, the opportunity to share some of the insights and wisdoms that I've learned and applied through my life. This is this is completely and entirely my honour, and thank you for asking me to come on the show. I, I genuinely do appreciate it. I look forward to sharing those honours with others. I hope that your audience has the opportunity to share their insights and wisdoms with others as I get to do with mine. And it's very much a privilege, I have to say. Thank you. Well, what did I tell you? A fascinating conversation, an interesting character, isn't he? Hey, thinking about the future and there's a whole realm of his brain, his mind, his thinking, his observation 
of life that is in the future. And yet, surprisingly, I think to him, very able to reflect on the past as well. Some interesting thoughts and observations of the world and where we're at now and perhaps where we need to go in the future. I like the analogy of, or at least the little slogan that says, we talk over coffee, but we connect over a meal. And I hope that in some part, even though uh, Daniel and I actually literally were both having a coffee at either end of our phone call, that it was more like a connection rather than just a talk. I hope that you found some interesting perspectives and some things that would help you to ponder. As I mentioned partway through the conversation, there are bits in there that I'm going to want to go back and listen again. I apologise for any hiccups in the audio, but we've done our best. And I appreciate you enjoying these podcasts. And look, as always, we would encourage you and appreciate if you would share this episode with somebody who you think might appreciate it as well. And I hope you'll join us again next episode when we too will sit down with another yog to see how they too have been inspired by Yarra. And to make sure that you don't miss any of our upcoming conversations, you can subscribe on whatever app player you might be listening to this from. Hit subscribe and that way you'll never miss an episode. My name is Paul Joy and on behalf of everybody here at Yarra and especially the team of people who put these conversations and put them into this podcast for you, I want to wish you another day of inspiration where you head on out there to whatever challenge, obstacle, adventure that might come your way today, that you would, with intentionality, make a positive difference in the world around you.